You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. I am in the studio. You are not. Yes, I am away this week. I have a family issue I have to deal with on the island, so I'm doing that. You're in the studio running the soundboard, sound engineer Paul Doroshenko, co-host Paul Doroshenko, topic finder. Paul Doroshenko. Yes, indeed. And as I look at the soundboard, I can see that the uh, sound is better than last week. Maybe not perfect. <laughs> I'm a little bit quiet. Maybe I can do something with that. I don't know. Um, and uh, yeah, I found some good topics, but I found good topics in the last few weeks. I've been sending you topics. Yeah. Well, you wanted to be promoted to co-host, so I said you had to contribute well, more. I was already the co-host. <laughs> I was already the co-host. <laughs> You, uh, you're, 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 you're misconstruing things. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I did find good topics, but I'm leaving it to you to describe them. Well, what um, do you want to cover actually, this week? Also, I've given first, you all sorts of things and I don't know necessarily what you're going to pick. Look, our first topic is actually one I came up with oh, okay. because there's big news in the city of Vancouver. There's always big news in the city of Vancouver. It's a fast moving city. No, it's a fast-moving city, and lots of things happen. Last week, we had our election special, and uh, there isn't really anything to uh, to go over with respect to that because we ended up with the same government we had before, except now we have a house flipper in government. House so that's flipper. a Vancouver house flipper. That's excitement yeah. in the city. There'll be a judicial recount. That won't matter. The, the, the ju- judicial recounts always just confirm it. There's usually like one goes one vote either direction or something. So that won't that will not account will not amount to anything. So, uh, but yes, there's always things happening in the city and you want to talk about something that's happening in the city. You were shocked, there's regularly, you were shocked by how fast the city could move on some things. Well, I wasn't shocked by how fast they could move on some things. I mean, this is something that's been in the works for a long time. We have the city of Vancouver, which has uh, created its um, patio program during COVID where they took city parking spots street-level parking for restaurants, and they converted them to street-level patios where people who were dining in those restaurants could sit out in these little, like, wooden boxes where you would have once parked one or two or more cars um, and uh, and sit there and dine uh, next to moving cars. Uh, frankly, I never found it to be, like, the most desirable idea for an experience. Um, did you ever sit on one of those patios? Uh, I did on a uh, quieter street near the office, and um, I found it, um, you know, it was life sitting on a patio. But I've seen it all over the place. It's not just Vancouver, but the thing that surprised me was that when when the city actually had to move fast, it moved fast, whereas, you know, the rest of the time we see the city move at this glacial pace that, frankly, uh, causes everything to be that much more expensive because the uh, all of the developers have to wait for a year for the city. Yeah, but you're you're confusing, like council making amendments and like building and development permits. 
Well, no, I'm just talking about the city functioning. I mean, even the council making the amendments, they had to they had to come up with the uh, with a recommendation to council, and and they managed to do that on all in a matter of weeks. But so, what's the new development here that you're talking about? Because we've had these patios since like three weeks after the start of COVID. Well, it wasn't three weeks after the start of COVID because restaurants were closed. Whatever, May whatever. It happened but fast. They happened fast, and everybody wondered. Are they going to be permanent? Are we going to permanently lose this parking space in the city? Are we going to permanently have these patios, which restaurants have, I think, liked for increasing business and occupancy in the restaurant, and therefore getting more heads in? And the answer, finally, from the city, they voted this week to make them a permanent fixture. So we lose a lot of parking. Uh, eventually, there'll be some bad accident. Um, and the rest of the time, people are sitting around uh, breathing in uh, fumes, I guess, as they sit in a uh, what used to be a parking spot. But, you know, it's still, it's outside time, and the restaurants get to uh, get to uh, ensure that they've got tables even during COVID time and can space things. What about, uh, what about tax revenue? Is the city going to make any more money out of it? Out of it? Is the city going to charge the restaurants for it, or is this just some new well, they had gracious thing that the city can just a permit, or what is it? Yeah, they had to apply for a permit for mm-hmm. a street-level patio um, and submit some justification for it. Presumably, there were fees that went along with it, but I can't see it as a, like a long-term revenue generation for the city. Unlike parking meters, where you might pay 2 to $6 an hour, depending on where your parking meter is installed. Hmm. Yeah, so, so they're going to lose the revenue from the parking meters for sure. They're they're going to lose the revenue from the parking meters, and they may have felt they like... Put new, they put new meters up all over the place, though, and they've jumped up and jacked up the prices. <laughs> so Yeah, but they may have felt like they were getting a hit from the parking during COVID um, because nobody was parking downtown, and there was a period of time for free parking. So if you actually look at the revenue from you know 2019 versus 2020 that came in from parking, they might be going, well, you know... Some improvement is better than no improvement, but they could have gone back to the 2019 or even greater levels of parking revenue. So, but from your perspective, you think that this is a mistake losing the parking space? Yeah, yeah I think so it's a So you think as a driver reasons. that it's a... Three reasons. Okay, go ahead. Reason one, the city is losing the parking revenue. And do you know where they're going to come and get that revenue back from? Taxing the shit out of property owners. Like property owners in Vancouver aren't already taxed to the hilt. Yes, and that's Nothing. because the uh, property is worth so much money, and people who own property in Vancouver are like making ten to fifty thousand dollars a month in the increase in the value of their property. Yeah, that's theoretical money. It's not real money, so I don't really count that. Soon as it uh, sure becomes real, the moment you sell. <laughs> Problem is, you have to live somewhere. To, <laughs> becomes real the moment you have to pay taxes too, I guess. But still. It's, you know, they're going to pass the taxes on to the property owners, which I don't think fixes any of the problems the city faces. It only creates a greater unaffordability issue for renters because property owners now have to charge more for rent to make up the cost. And it makes it more difficult to enter the market because the price of property necessarily goes up to offset the cost of the taxes. And then the cost of the taxes go up because the price of the property goes up and it's like a horrible, nasty circle that prevents people like me from ever buying a house. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's set up so nobody can enter the market these days. Um, 
extremely wealthy. Or you've got a wealthy family who's going to give you a big down payment or something like that. Yeah. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, I think eliminating parking downtown is only making our traffic congestion worse. How much time have you spent in your days of driving around downtown just driving around trying to find a parking spot? Yes, but I mean, I haven't spent that much time in the last little while driving around looking for a parking spot. Whenever I can't find one, I just pull into one of those patios. <laughs> well, which push the tables right? aside because I'm usually <laughs> driving my truck. Yeah, and and you know what? It's raining. Yeah, six, nine months of the year, and I can't see anyway. I know, yeah, anyway. and they'll get out of the way fast for me. But this this is the other thing, right? Like you have. You have a complete elimination of a parking spot, which is a well, usually two parking spots or three parking spots for any sure. restaurant. Sure, but it's a year-round revenue generation for the city. It's year-round accessibility for people who use the city. Think about people with disabilities who actually need to park, um, people with mobility issues, um, people who are just lazy like me. <laughs> think, of, think about the uh, the uh, extra you can rent that restaurant location out for if it's got some parking out front as opposed to some restaurant yeah. that doesn't have the parking out front. Suddenly yeah. that you can jack up the rent next time the lease comes up or find somebody else to rent it because, hey, look, you've got five tables out in a parking spot. Look, no, I, I, I am more likely to go to a restaurant if I know that there's somewhere nearby that I, and convenient that I can park at. I am less likely to return to somewhere if there is good food that I enjoy if parking is difficult. A great example of this, Black and Blue. Wonderful restaurant in Vancouver. I've been there a couple times, but I hate going there because there's no convenient parking nearby and your choices are valet or expensive downtown Vancouver uh, parkade, neither of which is ideal when you're already trying to spend money on a meal and you've got a limited budget. But let's stop for a second here. All of these restaurants have struggled and those that have managed to survive, there's been such sacrifice. And they need the opportunity to be able to try and recover that. I mean, there's lots of people who have spent all of their savings keeping their business alive. Thank goodness for the society that those businesses are there. And here you are. Kyla Lee wants to take it from the little guy who's got a restaurant and say, no, you can't have that patio space for your six tables because I want my parking space. I mean... Excuse me. I'm the little guy, too. I also sacrificed to keep our business alive. If you recall correctly, Paul, you didn't pay me for a year so that we could keep everybody employed. Yeah, well, but you also held back and I told you I would pay you. So there was a dispute there about that. I told you I would pay you. You know, I was willing to figure it out. I was going to go into my savings to pay you. I was happy to deal with that that way. And I told you that. But the point point here is that, um, and I appreciated it, the uh, point here is that we're talking about small restaurants. We're not talking about you. We're talking about restaurants that are trying to make it survive. And I, I, I am sympathetic for them. And they are uh, competing with restaurants in other local jurisdictions that have done this as well. And restaurants around the country have done this. I mean, I just don't understand why you would bother doing it in Winnipeg because it's going to be fucking minus 30 in about three weeks' time. And, well, I, don't, uh, and I don't understand why you would do it in Vancouver. Well, look. You can sit up. You can sit outside. You put on your toque and bring your umbrella. No, it's great in June, July, August, September, and the first week of October. 
but the rest of the year, it's pouring rain or cold as balls because it's a wet cold. And so it's not enjoyable. I'm not sitting on a patio any of those other months of the year. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to get me on a patio in the first week of October or the end of September even. All true. Um, And in those nice months, people are riding their bikes and there's fewer vehicles on the road. So those are the times those patios would be used. In winter, the patios are not used so much, and maybe what they have to do is come up with a uh, some sort of system where the uh, the patio is removed in the wintertime and then put back in, uh, you know, like May 15th. May 15th to October 15th. Then you create a storage problem for the, the restaurant. Then you create an industry for the storage industry. You create a whole new <laughs> business. Okay, I think we've exhausted this. I mean, No, I'd, there's one more point what, I want to make go about ahead. it. You keep interrupting me. And that's safety. And that's the biggest concern, really, with this. Is it a safety risk? Because you're going to get people on those patios. They're going to be drinking late into the night now that we have liquor service, you know, at all hours again. And what are they going to do once they've been drinking? They're going to get in their cars and they're going to whip around a corner and they're not going to think that a patio's there. I'm going to plow into a patio full of people and people are going to die. Well... Uh, I was in Jasper and there was big concrete barricades around those patios. Uh, that is something they could do. I mean, yeah, okay, you take a risk, but you know, people will die for a drink. I don't know. I mean, it's... <clears throat> well, no, people because... People will die for a drink. <clears throat> well, we do right now, right? We sell alcohol. People drink and drive. We accept that there's, you know, if we didn't sell alcohol, nobody would die from... If there was no alcohol available to humanity, nobody would die from a drunk driving uh, incident. So, or falling in the street when you're drunk or stepping in front of a, you know, fast moving car or falling over a, down an embankment or whatever it is. I mean, people do stupid things when they're drunk. So I guess my view is that <clears throat> somewhere there are city engineers that are probably overly, they overly scrutinize every other set of plans. So they must start to, they'll probably start to overly scrutinize the plans for, uh, patios and, uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. There's lots of locations where there's plenty of parking. I think in uh, like downtown Kamloops, they put these in and they expanded the uh, the sidewalk out around it in some locations rather than having it out in the street. And that's probably a smarter way of doing it. And that could be the, you know, the way of the future in Vancouver. So someone yes. somewhere, yeah. some smart lawyer out there is going to sue the city of Vancouver when somebody dies of one of these accidents. I suppose they will, but, um, you know, that's the way it goes. That's the purpose of the uh, legal system. People get hurt, there's no justice, and they go to the legal system for justice, and then, you know, there's a, somebody flips a coin, probably. Maybe God. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> okay. So What are uh, we going to talk about? Because I know we... We're gonna- talk about this Ontario Court of Appeal decision that you sent me today because it has me so mad. I am worked up into a tizzy, Paul. I am tizzified. Well, that's the reason I sent it to you. To make me angry? (laughs) Yeah. So I don't have it in front of me. I don't have, I don't have any of this. I don't have either of the cases that I sent you. So you tell me. You're dealing with a family emergency, but I'd like to make you angry about the law. Yeah. (laughs) I knew when I saw it that you'd get angry and I'm angry about it too. Oh, my God, what a stupid judgment. I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but it's just, it's wrong. It is legally wrong, and I'm going to tell you all about it. Um, And you can chime in when you feel like it, but I'm going to talk a bit here. Uh, So this is the case of Ramroop, uh, 2021 ONCA 642, Ontario Court of Appeal. I don't know what is wrong 
there. So Mr. Ramroop is convicted at trial of uh, impaired driving causing bodily harm and failing to uh, remain at the scene of an accident where there was bodily harm because he was allegedly involved in a three-car accident. So there's a Chrysler 300. It's registered to his dad. And it, I guess, plows into a Toyota Corolla and an Acura SUV. And I always thought, like, Chrysler 300 versus Acura, the Acura should win. But anyway. Um, And then it ends up on a boulevard. The police show up. There's an empty can of beer on the front passenger seat. And a witness who goes, the driver ran into a nearby backyard and gives a description of a dark-skinned, slim person who's wobbling and unable to stand straight. So the police start patrolling backyards, and they find Mr. Ramroop lying in the backyard of a nearby residence, puking and, and unwell. And so they conclude he must be the driver because he's a dark-skinned dude in the backyard, and he's clearly been injured in a car accident, and he's vomiting. So must have been him. So there we go. Yep. And that's that's the evidence. Oh, they also smell gasoline on him. Like, yeah. that puts him in the driver's seat. It doesn't really do I, anything. Yeah. Um, um, and there's really not much for symptoms, except symptoms that are consistent with a head injury. Yeah, like the, the vomiting. Yeah. So the, he gets convicted at trial, and the trial judge infers, based on the circumstantial evidence, that he's the driver. But he gives oral reasons. And in his oral reasons, he relies on this guy's statement, Mr. Ramroop's statement that he had been the driver of the vehicle, which is fascinating to me because it was obviously inadmissible. It was made pre-charter. It wasn't voluntary. Um, So he couldn't rely on it for the purposes of proving any fact at trial. And he said, I'm going to give detailed written reasons later. When he gives his detailed written reasons, he goes back and he says, actually, turns out that statement that I said that I relied on in my oral judgment, I didn't rely on it. That was a mistake because it wasn't voluntary. So that didn't form part of my analysis, actually. Um, But all of this circumstantial evidence did, and that's why I'm convicting him. And to me, it doesn't appear from the Court of Appeal judgment that this was ever argued. And maybe this is a failure of Oh, no, no, they do argue it. They do argue it. It's just that the Court of Appeal just says, oh, yeah, no, but that's fine. <laughs> to argue what? Just say, that's in paragraph four that that is argued. Um, he failed to evaluate the evidence in his second judgment, and then paragraph five is two words: we disagree. No, uh, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. <clears throat> oh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, I, I get, I get the argument that he failed to <clears throat> evaluate the evidence. But what the argument should have been is not that he didn't evaluate the evidence, but that he was doing judicial gymnastics to justify a conclusion that he had unlawfully reached in order to avoid an appeal. And these arguments have been successful before, where judges take a long time to give their, their written reasons after an oral judgment, and the written reasons are different, and there's some idea that an appeal is, has been or is going to be filed, and likely, if he was relying on an inadmissible statement, the notice of appeal may have already been filed, or at least he would have had an inkling, oh, crap, I messed up, I'm going to be appealed. and so. The courts look at it and go, the judge might be trying to justify their conclusion, their erroneous conclusion, by rendering different a different set of reasons than what they actually had in mind in arriving at the conviction. I think that should have been the argument here. 
Well, I look at it, and that's the only conclusion I come to, because I don't see how the rest of the evidence could lead to the conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the driver. And I still don't understand how they can conclude he is impaired by alcohol after he's been in an accident, and the symptoms are as consistent as as with a person who has just been in an accident, although there's an odor of liquor. There's an odor of liquor, there's a beer on the passenger seat, and there's some really bad driving that leads to the collision. So the court's like, well, there must have been some degree of impairment because there's evidence of alcohol. But you have to actually put the alcohol in the person's body. Yeah, there's evidence of one beer. beer. So that explains any any odor. Yeah, it explains the odor. There's also no evidence of when that one beer was consumed. Was it consumed while he was driving at a point in time that it wouldn't have impaired him? Was it consumed... After the collision, at a point in time when, again, it wouldn't have impaired him in his ability to operate the motor vehicle. Um, Like, how do you get from one beer consumed at an unknown time, empty in a car, could have been weeks earlier than it was in the car, to the guy's impaired because he's got indicia of a head injury? And one beer. And, And one beer. But the other thing that I found really troubling about this judgment, and I don't know if you picked up on this, was the four things that the judge relied on as the circumstantial evidence. The fact that the vehicle was registered to the guy's father, which... Doesn't tell you he's a driver. He might have a brother. He might have let his friend drive. Yeah. Because he He, had a beer. He says, it's registered to his father. (laughs) Well, I bet you this guy's father's also a dark-skinned male. And because of the way genetics work, his father may also be slender, as he was described to be. Well, I used to go drive around with my dad sometimes after we had a beer. Sometimes I'd be driving his vehicle. Sometimes he'd be driving his vehicle. Sometimes my friends would be driving my dad's vehicle. Sometimes I took people on test drives. Sometimes I'd let people drive it just for fun. Yep. Fast. The the, the fact that you're driving a vehicle that belongs to a family member doesn't, or that you're associated to a vehicle that belongs to a family member doesn't mean you were driving it. Um, imagine if you're at like a family party where multiple people are going to be leaving in relatively the same direction or from relatively the same direction in vehicles registered to family members. Like you in your dad's car. <laughs> like your dad driving. As I've been and on you're... the island this week, if my parents are away, I've thought about, you know, my car is low on gas. Maybe I'll take their car today. <laughs> and I know where the keys are and I could take their car. Nobody would stop me. Of course, if you end up in a backyard, you would have been driving. But you never know. I mean, that's the the point is, I you know, yeah. I used to travel with my dad. Sometimes yeah. my dad would drive. Sometimes I would drive. Just yeah. because it's registered to his dad shouldn't tell you that he was the guy who was driving. We're talking about a beyond a reasonable, a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Yeah. And I just could not come to see how you could come to that conclusion on that well, description. Me- let me get you to the most troubling part. Which is why I said this me. to you. Let me get you to the most troubling part for me. It also says <sighs> no one else from the Chrysler was found at the scene of the accident or sought medical attention. What on earth does that even mean? There was a report that somebody fled. So, of course, it's not, you're not going to expect to find them at the scene if the report is that the driver left. Yep. You're going to expect to find them. Not, Not at, at the, the scene. scene, yeah. Away from the scene, somewhere that isn't the scene of the accident. And secondly, how do they come to, in what 
world are they capable of coming to the conclusion that no one from the accident that wasn't the accused sought medical attention? Did they? Did the police actually go and serve a warrant on every hospital, every medical clinic, every veterinarian's office? I don't know. Think how many uh, rural cases we've had where somebody is driving along, there's like four people leaving the, the bush party or whatever the hell it is, and somebody ditches their car and somebody else picks them up and they yeah. leave. Yeah. And sometimes the owner stays with the car and wasn't the driver because they've yeah. called the tow truck. Oh, I gotta, I gotta get the car towed. Yeah, well, sorry, man. Leave. Sorry, I ditched your car. Yeah, you better leave. Yeah. You've been drinking. Exactly. Well, I've been drinking yeah. too. Yeah, but it, I wasn't driving. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess you'll no. be okay, and then they end up arrested or not. You know. But how? <laughs> how? How on earth? What could possibly have been the evidentiary basis for the court to come to the conclusion that n- no one sought medical attention? Like, there is no way they could have obtained that evidence. It's not like the hospital's going to be like, oh, yes, well, we had somebody show up here uh, who's not the driver um, or who who was the driver of a vehicle that was in a collision. Um, and they told us it was the Chrysler 300 and that they left scene and they sought medical attention. Like you show up at a hospital and you've got injuries consistent with a car accident. Are they really phoning every hospital and getting reliable information? Because, A, if the hospitals are releasing that type of information, I am I am troubled. But B, even if they are, that doesn't mean <laughs> that maybe the driver wasn't injured. Cars are built with safety features. How often do we see cases where vehicles are involved in serious collisions? The driver, who is impaired, <laughs> suffers like no injuries and walks away. And yeah, they're yeah, fine. Pretty common. And, like somebody's dead on the road or somebody's like severely badly injured. And the driver's like, oh, sh- that's shitty. <laughs> usually not remorseful um, like it's often yeah i know i know this is like as i was reading this all i could think of was i can think of a thousand things out of my own life experience that caused me to conclude that one should have more than a reasonable doubt here and my question is why is this happening because this decision would not have been rendered 30 years ago when back when I was learning all of this and reading all the case law, or 20 years ago. But I think this decision is in line with what we see now, and that is that the reasonable doubt standard has fallen away. And I, I suspect that it is an issue of judges from middle-class families who have not had that life experience, who have not been the backseat driver in the car with the guys who have been drinking and you're all drinking uh when you're 17 or 20 or whatever yeah Yeah. um you know they've grown up in in nice families in the uh in the nice part of montreal or the nice part of toronto or the nice part of vancouver and they end up on the court of appeal and they just can't imagine that how could you how could a person be a not be the son of the owner of the vehicle and not have been the driver <laughs> when people at, left the scene <laughs> at $360,000 a year living in downtown Ottawa or downtown Toronto, your transportation options, if you're going to be going out and drinking, are limitless. Yes, they're very different than. You uh, could literally afford to buy yourself a helicopter to take you home. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, rent a helicopter, not buy it. So I just like the the uh, the, the the judge at trial. Um, I have big problems with the decision for the reasons that you've identified. I don't see how, when you've already rendered a decision relying on inadmissible evidence, that you can come back and render a decision. I would think at that point, at best, uh, you know, it's a mistrial. I would have thought, um, and <laughs> I, I would have, on my own accord, if I was the judge, found a mistrial. Um, okay, and then when it gets to the Court of Appeal, you're sitting here looking at it going, how did you people come to this conclusion? Did you not think of all the other options that are out there? The last thing I want to talk about is, because you're, you're sort of alluding to it with the fact that the reasonable doubt concept is sort of falling away with the greater amount of privilege that people have in our society and, and the people who become our judiciary have. Um, but we're also losing sight of especially in impaired driving cases, I think, where the burden of proof lies. Because the burden is not on the accused to provide an alternative for who was driving or an alternative explanation for how the collision occurred beyond their impairment. The burden is on the Crown to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. In paragraph 16 of this judgment, and this is a 17-paragraph Court of Appeal judgment, which is self I found it as we were talking here. I I went to the email where I sent it to you, and I have it. Paragraph 16 says, uh, The trial judge noted there was no evidence of of anything, such as mechanical failure, medical emergency, or road obstruction, that would explain the nature of the accident, and found that it was consistent with some sort of impairment by the driver of the Chrysler. Given the presence of an empty beer can in the passenger seat and the smell of alcohol in the appellant, it was open to the trial judge to conclude from the totality of the circumstances that the only reasonable inference was that the appellant was impaired to some degree and to find that the Crown had proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt. But I'm sorry, when you go, there's no evidence of these possible explanations for this driving behavior, you're saying the burden is on the accused to adduce that evidence. And that is legally inaccurate. It is legally inaccurate. It's also uh, logically uh, doesn't follow because that suggests that you have to you have to invest investigate every other possible circumstance rather than looking at the evidence that's before you. Well, and how do you get that? How do you get that evidence? Like, I'm I'm, I'm going to switch off this judgment now to talk about some practical hurdles that you face as an accused individual in an impaired driving case. Um, you know, this case, the, the guy was also charged with over 80, and the blood samples were thrown out. But there are practical hurdles that you face, because if you get in an accident, and your car is mangled, and they're investigating the cause of the collision, one thing that the police do is they seize the vehicle, and they keep it for investigation. And then, you know, they'll file their Form 5.2, they'll file their... Uh, their application for further detention of things seized. They'll do all of those those necessary steps that they have to do to keep it, but they also obstruct you in gathering that evidence. They're off sending it to their mechanical experts, and their mechanical experts are taking it apart and messing it with it and changing it from the state it was in at the time that it was in the collision. And you have no practical ability to interrupt that process to do your own mechanical assessment. And even if you did, even if you applied to the court, which I suppose you do have the right to do, you're dealing with evidence that's in a different condition than when it was seized because it's already been taken apart by the police. 
Well, also, where do you take it? Where do you take yeah. it? Where do you take it that you're going to have somebody who can do that investigation? And how do you afford it? You know, this is an access yeah. to justice issue. We've had this many times before where I look at the file and I tell the client, look, yeah, we can hire an expert here to do this and this and this, uh, but it's going to cost you an extra $10,000. That's the quote yep. I've got on, you know, this reconstructionist or whoever it is. And, yep. you know, or we can rely on their evidence and, and take our best shot. Oh, and yeah. people yeah. don't have the extra ten grand. If you're wealthy, you've got it. Okay, you can afford it. If you're a if you're a, a hugely wealthy person, yeah, yeah. But if you're if you're a, a regular person, you can't do it. If you're le on legal aid, you'll get your lawyer paid for, right? You know, if you're a regular person, you're a trying to pay for your lawyer, and then b trying to figure out whether or not well, can I pay for that, and what's it going to find, and uh, you know, I don't know why it didn't work. I mean, you and I know we had a case, right? We had a yep. case where had their expert, well, yeah. I know, but we had a case where their expert uh, did the whole inspection of the vehicle, and then they came back with this thing, and then we found out that that particular vehicle had a problem, and that was the steering wheel being pulled off. Mm -hmm. And that car went swerving across the road, and the and the uh, driver said, look, I, like, there was no control over the car, and they never found that when they did the investigation. Why? Because well, the steering wheel got banged back on by the guy's body. <laughs> <laughs> when it impacted onto the, when he hit the the wheel when he had the collision, and we had that one case, and where I figured it out. I figured it out, right? But their expert didn't. But how many people had, would have? We had that one case mm. where there were a number of recalls that would have caused the specific collision, the acceleration, random acceleration yes. issue that affected our client, and the collision reconstructionist for the RCMP didn't even search the recalls. Well, that was the same with the steering wheel. They hadn't searched. They hadn't searched the recalls. So. Yeah, and and you also have the problem, like, when you want to do a collision reconstruction, the evidence that's generated at the roadside is fundamental to that, right? The officers are going out there. They're photographing saw marks on the roadway and, and the, you know, tire marks and gouges in the concrete. And by the time you get even an inkling that... There is some type of an investigation into you, a criminal investigation as a result of your driving in that type of collision. All of that evidence has been driven over. Somebody, It's not like you can phone up at 3 o'clock in the morning after having just been in an accident, phone up some engineer and be like, hey. Forensic witness who can come and yeah. look at it can and then testify later. Pop on out to the scene. Like the police have this unlimited resource of eye cars and their ident units and all this that can come at any hour of the day. And they've always got somebody on shift. And if they don't, they can call them in and they can close off the roads and stop traffic until they can get there to photograph and preserve all of this evidence. But you and I don't get that right. Well, I also think of the time that we had an investigation where, you know, they came to certain conclusions about our client crossing the road, crossing over a line, and we went out there and found that the line on the road intersects with where there used to be a line on the road that had been gouged off the road or that they had, you know, had been yep. ground away. Uh, and that was nowhere in the police report. And the intersection was quite, or the, the collision, was it like exactly X marks the spot where the old line, you know, yep. crossed over the new line? Yep. All right. My anger anyway. Yeah, I know. We're, we're, we're building ourselves up into being angry. And I don't think we have time to cover the case that we decided last week we didn't have time to cover. And it's an important one and we need to talk about it. But I think well, we need to, I think we need to move to on to, I think we have to adjourn that last one. Court time. Yep. Besides, I need something, I need something to cool me off, Paul. I need something that's going to make me smile. I need 
the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. Oh, it is much better because I can tell you, our uh, I'm I'm feeling very. You've you've made me. You've got my fury up now, and I don't think we can talk about that other decision. So let's talk about the ridiculous driver of the week. It's a pretty right. good one. It's a pretty this good one. Great. Yeah. First of all, it's in Florida. Obviously. Yeah. No, it's gonna be good. So this is a man. A very sad-looking man in his mugshot, which you can Google, uh, who went to Lake City, uh, Florida, uh, stole a car, allegedly, from a car dealership, and then a couple days later goes back to that same car dealership to try and trade in his stolen car for a better car. It's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, did he forget where he stole it? But the yeah. other thing is, the dealership didn't figure it out until they looked at the VIN number. So they got that far into the process before they realized, hey, this guy's brought in the car that he stole from us a few how days would, ago. How would you not recognize the car? You like, would think everybody in the in the dealership would have figured it out, but yeah. they may not have realized that the car was stolen. They may have, you know, when the car comes back, they might have realized it. And maybe he's not the guy who stole the car, right? I was thinking about that after I read this one. Maybe he, he did. He was. Yeah, I know. Well, they say he was, and he probably was. They probably had, had him on video or something. I mean, somehow he managed to get the keys, so he either took it for a test drive. I think that's what it was. Took it for a test drive, but then he shows up four days later to trade it in. And ah, uh, yes, I've got a a, a black Lexus, uh, twenty twenty one model, and um. It's got 47 miles on it. Yeah. I'd like to trade it in. Well, probably had a few hundred on that point because he's been driving it around. Anyway, hilarious. I know. Yeah, driving it like he stole it? Probably. Probably. <laughs> Florida guy. I love yeah. that one. I love that one. Anyway, that's a good one. That's worth uh, always sticking around for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Yep. So well, that's the podcast, Kyla. The podcast. Good podcast. Um, Lots of passion there. I'm probably more passionate than I want to get on the podcast. I've been trying to rein it in. No, no. People come for the passion. Do they? Oh, okay. They come yeah. for the debate. They come for the passion. They come for the ridiculous driver of the week. Well, I would imagine the ridiculous driver of the week is a is a big feature. Anyway, that was great. So look forward to next week. Yes, and if you need to reach us in the meantime, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.